So today, in our passage in 1 Corinthians, we are coming to the end of Paul yelling at the Corinthians. Pretty much. I mean, there are a few things he dings them for in chapter 15. But for the most part, chapter 15 is this glorious account of the resurrection and a meditation on what that means. And chapter 16 is a bunch of you know little uh, personal shout-outs and some instructions. But today is, is sort of the last that we get of Paul yelling at the church in Corinth. Um, but he definitely goes out strong. As we have been talking about, beginning in chapter 11, really from 11 through 14, Paul is dealing with the, the issue of the Corinthians and the way that they worship. The Corinthians and the way they worship God. There are all kinds of problems. And at the beginning of chapter 11, he's talking about a, a situation where people are not attired properly in worship. They're not, they're not comporting themselves the right way. The way that they're worshiping is dishonorable and is distracting. Uh, it is not bringing glory to God. It is not building up the body of Christ. It's just a mess. That's bad. Uh, he then talks about the problem where you have people who are uh, hosting gatherings of the church. They're hosting Eucharistic meals, the, the, the having communion uh, at these love feasts. The problem is... Um, the rich people are there early and they eat and drink everything. And then by the time the poorer folks come, including probably some people who are slaves of the wealthier people, uh, there's not much left. They just get crumbs. That's also bad. And then moving on to chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts, which are not bad, which are good, but the way the Corinthians are dealing with them is bad because they are privileging some gifts over others. They're saying that some things that are done in the church are more important than others, uh, and they're, they're uh, having contempt for the, the things that they consider less important and being all excited about the ones that they think are more important and not living into the gifts that God's given them and the, the work that he's called them to do. That is bad. And in, 11, in 13, Paul says the corrective to this, the better way, is love. Also not bad. Love is good. But acting in a non-loving manner is bad. So he says, the problem, you guys, is that you are not acting out of love. You're acting out of all kinds of other things, which means that you're being rude, you're being self-seeking, you're being easily angered, you get cranky, you are holding grudges against one another, and what happens is you end up delighting in evil. You need to follow the way of love, which is patient and kind, which is not envious, it's not boasting, it's not proud like you guys. And in chapter 14, he addresses two specific issues where this is manifest, this problem of the attitudes of the Corinthians is manifesting in worship. Now, we can understand what's going on here in chapter 14 better if we understand the nature of the culture that uh, the Corinthians were living in. Right? So as you remember, Corinth was a Greek city that was destroyed by the Roman Empire. Then the Romans said, hey, it would really be a shame to have a nice port city like this in ruins. Let's build it again. So the Corinth that Paul is writing to is a new city. It's a Roman city. It's a city that has people from all over. It's a bustling port city. And you have Jews and Gentiles. You have people from all kinds of different backgrounds. 
there in Corinth. Uh, you, quite frankly, you have a lot of new money in Corinth because any old money would have been wiped out when the uh, original city of Corinth was, was knocked down by the Romans 100 years before. So um, you have that combined with the fact that they're in an honor and shame culture. In an honor and shame culture, what you seek is honor and what you try to avoid is shame, right? This is, I mean, this is kind of intuitive, but uh, think of this on steroids. So if you are in an honor-shame culture and you want to receive honor, then you are going to do things that will make you look good in the eyes of your community. What are those things? Well, you can erect a statue, for example. You know, so if you find, uh, you know, when archaeologists find these, these statues, it would be you know, the statue erected to the honor of the emperor by X person. And X person then is, achieves honor in the sight of the community. Or if you host a festival, you know, some particular religious festival, uh, it is sponsored by this person for the sake of the community, but everybody thinks that you're terrific. If you're somebody who doesn't have enough money to do that kind of thing, then you can either become ambitious and try to advance socially, try to, um, uh, uh, to socially advance instead of sewing some pants. You can learn to, uh, to take on a trade. You can attach yourself to somebody who is wealthy and powerful. So you can become, um, you can ha- take on a patron. You can become somebody who's attached to somebody. So if I don't have what it takes, but I know Kevin does, I can kind of come alongside Kevin and try to c- come under his wing. And then if I'm attached to Kevin and he's, he's got honor, then I will get more honor. That'll also give me more opportunities to move up. What I don't want to do is put myself in a situation where I look bad, where I am in a place where I am ashamed because of the way I'm dressed or the fact that I cannot afford something or because there are people who are attached to me that are doing things that make me look bad. So if Kevin is my patron and I run out in the street naked, that's going to make him look bad. I mean, it's also going to give people heart attacks, but it's going to make Kevin look really bad. And so Kevin is not going to want that. If you're in an honor-shame culture, you want to look good, you want to not look bad. You want to avoid being ashamed, and you want to seek those things that are honorable. Well, it seems like in Corinth, one of the gifts that was being perceived as honorable was the gift of tongues, right? So by tongues, what Paul is probably talking about here is, is the practice of praying aloud in a language that nobody, including the person praying it, understands. So this is a different from the phenomenon of speaking in tongues that you had at Pentecost, where all of the, um, uh, the, the disciples who were gathered together in Jerusalem at Pentecost began speaking and testifying to the resurrection of Jesus in the languages of the people who were there from all over the Roman Empire. Here, I think what Paul is talking about is he's talking about people who are uh, doing what from the outside would seem like babbling or, or incoherent mumbling or rambling, but that this is a language in which they are praying. And this, it seems, is something that the community honored, that the community thought was awesome. And basically the people who were doing it thought of themselves as superior to the people who couldn't, and the people who couldn't thought of themselves as inferior and wanted to have the honor associated with experiencing this ecstatic religious experience because some of it may also have been people really kind of you know got their jesus on by praying this way and this was something that felt good something that was was uh was satisfying
to them. And what Paul in chapter 14 says is, let me suggest that there is a better, more useful, more edifying gift than tongues. He says, so follow the way of love and eagerly desire all the spiritual gifts, but especially in order that you may prophesy. Now with prophesying, he's probably talking there about preaching, about bringing a word uh, to the community that is a word of, of encouragement, of correction, of comfort. He says anyone who speaks in a tongue, anybody who, who uh, speaks in this unknown language, doesn't speak to men but to God, right? The understanding of somebody speaking in tongues is that they kind of have this direct connection to God when they're speaking in this tongue. It's like the spirit within them is speaking to God and they don't have control over it, but it just, it just goes. And, you know, frankly, nobody understands anybody who's speaking in tongues. This person is uttering mysteries by the spirit. But people, when they're prophesying or preaching, they speak to people for their strengthening, for their encouragement, for their comfort. The one who speaks in tongues is just edifying himself. But the one who prophesies, hopefully, edifies the church. The Greek is oikodomeo, to literally to build up the house. Paul says, you know, I think it would be great if you all spoke in tongues, really. And, 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 and what I read from this is that probably at some point in one of their letters to him, they said, hey, Paul, check it out. More and more of us are speaking in tongues. Maybe by the time we see you next, all of us will be speaking in tongues. Won't that be great? Paul says, maybe not. You know, yeah, that would be great if you did, but I would rather have you prophesy. I'd rather have you be able to, to, to speak to one another. So whoever prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues. That is, unless there's interpretation, that the church may be edified. So, and, and we're not sure whether Paul is talking about the person who speaks in tongues then saying, you know, blah, 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 blah. What, that, what I'm saying is, Jesus says, be comforted by this. Or if there's somebody next to them saying, you know, oh, what Jason is saying is you should be comforted by this. Either way, there needs to be some interpretation so that everybody who is there, the whole church, can be, can be edified. So here's the deal, my brothers and sisters. If I come to you and I speak in tongues, what good is that going to be? I mean, unless I have some revelation, some knowledge, some prophecy or word of instruction, if I just come and I speak and babble, it's not going to do you any good. I mean, even the case of lifeless things that make sounds, like the flute or harp, how's anybody going to know what tune's being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet doesn't sound a clear call, who can get ready for battle? Same way with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anybody know what you're saying? You're just going to be speaking into the air. Now, undoubtedly, there are all kinds of languages in the world, but, but, but none is without meaning. And if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone's saying, it's like I am a foreigner. Somebody speaks a different language, and he's a foreigner to me. So same thing with you all. Since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, and you guys are so excited about these spiritual gifts to a degree that Paul is saying, you guys are kind of freaking me out. So try to excel in those gifts that build up the church. Not the ones that build up yourself. Not the ones that feel good. Not the ones you think are impressive, but the ones that build up the church. And so that's why anybody who speaks in a tongue, if you find yourself speaking in tongues, that's great. Here's the first thing you need to do. Pray that there can be somebody who can interpret what you're saying. I mean, if I pray in tongues, 
My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I don't know what's going on. So what am I going to do? I can pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. I, I can sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with a, a sound mind. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can somebody who finds himself among those who don't understand say amen? How can you say amen to... Blah, 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 blah? Right? He, he doesn't know what you're saying. I mean, you may well be giving thanks, but the other man is not edified because he has no idea what you're saying. And I thank God, by the way, all you people who think you're awesome, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Mic drop. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, my brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be grown-ups. Remember, in Torah, it's written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they won't listen to me, says the Lord. <coughs> so tongues then are a sign. They're, they're a sign not for believers, they're a sign for unbelievers. But prophecy is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everybody's speaking in tongues... And some who don't understand or some unbelievers come in, what are they going to say? Everybody's there going, blah, 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 blah. Well, let's say you're a bunch, of, a bunch of crazy people. You're out of your mind. But if an unbeliever or someone who doesn't understand comes in while everybody's prophesying, if he comes in and he finds people in their right mind saying things that make sense, then he'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and he'll be judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What's going on right now, Paul says, is not making people who visit you say, God is really among you. What's making people, what it's making people do right now is say, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't want any part of it. These people are nuts. So what then shall we say, my brothers and sisters, when you come together, you know, let everybody have a hymn or a word of instruction, a, a revelation uh, or a, a, a tongue or interpretate, with interpretation, but, but they all have to be done for the edifying, the strengthening, the building up of the church. And if anybody speaks in a tongue, two, at the most three, should speak, and, and one at a time, you don't want to have everybody kind of doing this blah, 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 blah thing all together, you know, one at a time, and make sure there's somebody interpreting. If there's no interpreter then the person who's speaking in tongues should shut a heck up. He should keep quiet in the church. And you know what? He can speak to himself and he can speak to God and that really ought to be enough. If this is a private prayer language between you and God, then nobody else really needs to be in on the conversation. And two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone while they're sitting down, while the preaching is going on, then the first speaker should shut up and let the person who has a revelation get up and speak. And you can all prophesy, but do so in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Here's the thing. The spirit of a prophet is under the control of a prophet. The spirit of a prophet is under the control of a prophet. And if you're experiencing some sort of spiritual gift and you're not able to control it, that's not prophecy. That can very likely not be edifying. Because God isn't a God of disorder. But God is a God of peace. 
And if what's going on in the way you're worshiping God is, is resulting in absolute chaos, then you know you've missed the mark. So this first issue that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 has to do with tongues, with the speaking in, in these strange languages that, that people aren't understanding. And he says the, the, the key thing is worship has to be done in order to honor God. Worship has to be done in a way that respects the integrity of the body of Christ, that builds up the body of Christ, that is aware of the way that the body of Christ is experienced by those who are new to it, those who are visiting, those who, who just come into our meetings and find out uh, find out from that what it is to be to be following Jesus. These things should be done in love. These things should be done any any exercise of spiritual gifts, whatever we do in worship, needs to be done for in, in love. Needs to be done for the sake of building up the church, of honoring God first and foremost. It's not about us. It's not about us. So, and we've had this experience at New Hope, where there are people who are believe that they have the spiritual gift of singing, and they don't. I mean, you got it or you don't. And if you don't, then you shouldn't have a mic in front of you, right? You also probably shouldn't be singing at the top of your lungs without a mic, you know? Um, There's a a reason that I'm not doing liturgical dance in the service, right? There are actually many reasons, one of which is that I'm sort of allergic to the concept in the first place. Um, But I should not be doing that. The idea is everybody is to serve in the way that God's enabled them to serve because it's all about serving Jesus, building up the church, and representing God well to our neighbors. It is not about you getting your jollies by doing the thing you do in church. And if at any point the thing you do in church, the way you worship becomes more important than worshiping, then what you've done is you created an idol. You have made a worship of, made an idol of your worship. And it seems like that's the phenomenon Paul's talking about at the very end of 1 Corinthians 14, which is one of these passages that if you're following a lectionary, for example, it's going to skip over. And if, uh, if somebody goes to preach chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, they might well say, well, look at the time. I'm sorry I can't do this last bit. Because this is one of the most vexing passages in the New Testament where Paul says, as in all the congregations of the saints... Women should be silent in the churches. They may not speak, but they must be in submission, just as Torah says. And if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, there are a few different ways we can read this. One way we can read this is exactly as it seems to say, that women should not open their mouths and say anything in church. That would be difficult, though, to square with the beginning of chapter 11, wouldn't it? Because in the beginning of chapter 11, he is saying that every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So he is presuming a situation where you have women in church praying or prophesying, presumably they're doing that aloud, right? Presumably he's talking about the way these women are comporting themselves while they are doing, uh, while they were engaged in worship in a way that involves them speaking, right? So it's probably not a blanket uh, prohibition on women saying anything in church, 
right? Kind of like in the, in the cartoon, which is really funny, although it's hard to read because it's so small where the, the, uh, the, you've got a man and a woman sitting next to each other and the woman notices that the candlestick has fallen over and she tries to tell her husband and he says, Shh, we'll talk about it at home. It's fine as the flames are, are taking over the church. I don't think that's what's going on. And, and, and some people are so allergic to that idea that they've actually concluded that Paul didn't, didn't really write this, that this is something somebody wrote later and it got dropped into Paul's letter really early on, but it got dropped in because somebody had an axe to grind. He had some chauvinist monk along the way somewhere that wanted to make sure that Paul was saying the things that he thought. But there's a case to be made, but it's not a very good case on, on the grounds of the manuscript evidence. No, I, I think what is going on here, again, think about this honor-shame culture, is that in this Corinthian congregation you have women who are speaking in a manner that is bringing shame or dishonor to the man of the house, whether it be their, their husband or their father. And, and when he says if they want to inquire about something, what he may be referring to is what he mentions in 29, where, where the prophet is prophesying and then others are carefully weighing what is said. That could be an active process. It could be people asking questions or, or inquiring of the person uh, who is, who is uh, giving the sermon, uh, in a sense sort of interrogating or, or, um, or actively uh, uh, engaged in learning, like you would have in a, in, in a classroom sometimes, you know, where a student will say, well, hang on, teacher, if that's true, then what about this? Paul, Paul is saying, if you have that situation where a woman is doing that to her husband or to her father, then in a, situa- in a culture where he is going to be ashamed by her doing that, she should, not, she should not do that because it's all about building up the body. If you had a visitor coming and noticing that somebody's wife was challenging what he was saying in a public place, that would seem to be scandalous, not something that, that is uh, to, to draw people to worship Jesus. Now, what is, what is disgraceful here is that kind of speaking, not, broad, not just women speaking, because that is, um, as, as I said at the beginning of chapter 11, what Paul says is already happening, and he says how it ought to happen. And at the very and in this next passage, this is kind of the, almost where, where Paul gets the saltiest with them. He's like, oh, or what? You think the Word of God originated with you? What, you think you're the only people God's... Re- you, you, think, you, you think what you have to say is so important. God needs you to say it because if you don't say it, it's not going to get said. Really? You think you're the only one who's got something to bring to this party? Come on. Anybody who thinks he's a prophet, anybody who thinks he's spiritually gifted, guess what? I got spiritual gifts too. I'm an apostle. I got something to teach you. You need to listen. You better acknowledge, if you really are a prophet, if you really are spiritually gifted, then you're going to recognize that what I'm writing here is exactly what God has to say to you. And if you ignore this, then basically you ought to be ignored yourself. So, summing up, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. I'm not saying we need to shut this whole thing down. I'm saying that everything ought to be done decently and in order. Now that does not mean that you should make a fetish of everything being fitting and orderly. This is not Paul saying that the greatest gift of all is having OCD and making sure that the hymnals are precisely aligned in all the pew racks. 
what he's saying is that when we worship Jesus, we need to do this in a way that honors God, in a way that honors one another, in a way that honors Jesus' reputation to our neighbors. And if we are focused on loving one another, if we're focused on honoring God, this should not be a problem. If instead we're focused on what makes us look good, if we're focused on what makes us feel good, if we're focused on what makes us feel like we have the right place, that we're, we get to do the thing that we think we want to do, then we are missing the point. The point of worship is to honor God. We have to do that in a way that builds up the body of Christ, that helps to strengthen and establish the church and its mission that doesn't threaten it or undermine it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that New Hope is a church where despite our uh, frequent flubs and missteps, we do seek to worship you in a manner that is fitting. I thank you that even though we are the last people anyone would accuse of being organized religion, that the way we serve you is, I think, one that seeks to honor you and seeks to build up our body. I pray that all of us, as we exercise the gifts you've given us, as we do the things you're calling us to do, would always do them first and foremost for the sake of your glory and for the edification of your people. We pray that all of this would give you the name, the reputation that you deserve among our neighbors. I ask that it would also bring joy and gladness to you. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.